0: Awesome. Uh, We are continuing today in our series on forgiveness. We've been talking quite a while on forgiveness. We will eventually get to uh, the forgiving others part. Uh, But we're going to continue just talking about questions about uh, God's forgiveness. And it is just so incredible and it's so amazing that sometimes we push back on it. As we've talked about, like in, you know, like the King James Version in Romans 8.1, how they added, you know, some qualifiers in some of the, uh, in the texts where the most ancient of texts don't have that in there because we always want to qualify God's grace. We want to say it's, it's too much and you can't forgive that amazingly. It's got to, we got to have some rules or we got to tame it down a little bit. And so when we talk about God's forgiveness, sometimes we have all these kinds of questions. We looked at some last week when we talked about forgiveness and judgment today. And I want to talk about another um, kind of question or challenge to God's forgiveness is, like, if his forgiveness is actually that great, like we're really forgiven past, present, future, and it's like 100% he's forgiven and forgotten, like, does that mean we just kind of have a license to sin? Can you overemphasize God's grace so much where we're just going to become super selfish and we're going to do whatever we want? Sometimes we hear that challenge, and we're going to talk about that today, but a bit of a review. Uh, the reality is we are 100% forgiven. Uh, Through the work of Jesus, you are absolutely not 99.8, not 99.9, you are 100% forgiven. All of your mess-ups, failings, uh, things that you hoped that you could have done that you didn't do, or you should have loved someone and you didn't, or you didn't know that you should have been loving and you didn't. I mean, all those things, and whenever we've missed love, we're forgiven. Not just in the past, but all what's going to happen tomorrow, in the next day, all the way into the future, because Jesus only had to die once. Hebrews says over and over and over and over again that Jesus died once for all. He doesn't have to die again for future sins. It's, we are forgiven. And, uh, and he's so serious about this that he actually uh, forgets our sin, as Hebrews uh, 10 talks about. I will never again Remember their sins. And that doesn't mean he's just for now and then he's going to bring it up again as we talked about the challenge of Judgment Day. He says, I will never bring up your sin again. Why? Because you were actually forgiven. Colossians 2 says he has canceled the record of the charges against us. And the very definition of God's love carries this idea that love keeps no record of wrong, which which means that even... Even when we ask forgiveness, it's, it's like God's already done it, because He keeps no record of our wrong. because it's all been covered and cleansed, and we are absolutely forgiven in Jesus. And we, we talked through all that. We brought up the idea of Judgment Day last week and very different views, and we brought up this one view that is, is very consistent with the idea of God's Forgiveness for all time and, and, and the reality that Jesus is coming back But he's not coming back to deal with our sin As a lot of people suppose You know, that God's coming back to judge us all It's like, no, he's, he's forgiven us He doesn't keep a record of wrong it's, it's erased in Jesus But he is coming back to bring salvation He's coming back to renew us To cleanse us from any brokenness And trauma and failings And all those things that we haven't matured into here That, that we're going to go He's going to bring us complete salvation and in, in the end, uh, the good news is we are forgiven, and that we can boldly go into God's throne room of grace, and that we don't need to be afraid of judgment day, because we are forgiven. And this is what, this passage we've read every week, and let me just read it again, because there's so much in here. It says, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. We you can do that. You can actually trust in God's love. His love is unlike any other kind of love, because sometimes we can kind of trust in people's loves here, but, but all of our love is imperfect. But God's love, you can actually completely just rest in and trust in. Now, we have put our trust in His love because God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. He says says, we will not be afraid. Why? Because we know God is loving. We know we are forgiven. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world and just as Jesus walked in this world loving people and reaching out to the, the hurting and the poor, we, we, we try to do the same in this world. And then it says such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced His perfect love. And we try to we want to dive more into experiencing His love, being able to trust His love, to saturate ourselves in His love more. And it just removes that fear. And it draws us close to Him and it changes us and it transforms us beautifully. And some of the things that we have talked through. And, and, and because of this, that's where Romans 8.1 comes into play. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that there's some or there's a whole bunch waiting for you, it, it, there's, there's none because you are forgiven and uh, in this there's no shame as we've also talked about that anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. I Meaning it's not coming up in the future sometime when you have to stand before God, He is never going to put you to shame because there He keeps no record of wrong, because He has forgiven you past, present, future we have as the scriptures tell us, we have Uh, a perfect peace with him. And this means we should walk in a shameless way. You know, shame came in, of course, in the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve sinned. And they noticed themselves naked, and it says they felt shame. And immediately God steps into the picture. Uh, God comes up, and uh, he's, he's, where are you? And he tries to cover their shame, and he makes covering for them. I mean, God is in the business of shame removal. And ultimately because we are forgiven we should do everything to make sure shame doesn't stick to us you look at Jesus it's interesting that Jesus he carried and experienced pretty much every emotion that we do you see him you know happy and joyful you see him angry we see him you know so anxious and stressed out that he was shedding blood before the crucifixion but the one emotion you don't see Jesus ever carrying is shame in fact Adam and Eve, when they were naked, they felt shame. Yet Jesus, when he hung on the cross naked and exposed and being blamed for a whole bunch of junk he didn't do, I mean, the most shame potential situation that could possibly be was what Jesus was on the cross. And it says he despised the shame. He did not let it stick to him. And we too want to walk in the same manner of Jesus where you don't let shame stick to you. And you know that that shame is never coming from God. If you ever feel shame or condemnation, you know it's not coming from God because you are forgiven. And he looks at you with eyes of peace and grace. And so when that shame comes from our own selves or from others, uh, we need to make sure that we despise it, we push it away. We just don't let it stick to us because we are free in the love of Jesus. And so again, the good news is you're forgiven. And you can really actually allow the freedom of that to settle into your heart. Knowing, as Romans 5, 1, that you have peace with God, that he, he really likes you. He didn't just love you. He likes you. <laughs> and, and he smiles when he sees your face because you have absolute peace with God. And, and sometimes we're just saying, like, that's too good to be true. That's too loving. That's too grace. I mean, we've got to tame that down somehow. It's like, no, no, we don't tame that down because it is the beautiful story of the gospel. That God is building this kingdom of love. But sometimes we do push back. And again, Sometimes people push back with the fear of judgment day, as we talked about last week. Sometimes people fear, push back with, well, if you teach that, you're just going to give all your people a license to sin. They're just going to go super selfish and go crazy if they just say that, you know, they're just forgiven And all their sin, past, present, and future, and that God's happy with them, and that's just a license for people to sin. Or, you know, maybe this will come into play as the good old Al Pacino quote. He says, I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't work that way. So I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. You know? I mean, is, is this the result of knowing God's forgiveness, right? Just, we can go steal stuff and we can go make everybody miserable. We can, just, we can trash this world now because we were just forgiven. It doesn't matter what we do. I can do whatever I want. I can be super selfish cause, because after all, I'm forgiven. Even, so if I screw up, I'm just like, well, I'm already forgiven anyways. I mean, should we, should we tame God's forgiveness? Should we roll back on this idea of God's love and build some more fear in there? And you got to worry about, you know, God's going to get you for that kind of thing. Well, let's talk about that, because Paul actually talks about this clearly in Romans 5 and 6. In Romans 5, he just goes off on just how amazing God's grace is, and then he basically brings up this same question. In Romans 5, 1, he, he says this, we have been made right in God's sight by faith. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. You are right in God's sight. A lot of people don't believe that that as you stand in the presence of god that you are right in his sight because we as the church sometimes get so sin focused and so judgment focused that we have a hard time even believing that <laughs> that we are righteous in god's sight and it's not because we're so good it's because jesus is so good and we have peace with god because of what jesus christ our lord has done because of our faith christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And so he's got to get this out of it that somehow you're going to earn this. Or somehow that, you know, I've been such a good Christian, this is why I'm right in God's sight. It's because I'm better than all those other folks. This is, this is why God is happy. But you've got to get rid of that because you can never earn your righteousness with God. It's undeserved. It's just God lavishing his grace and his loveness, love on you, and he's forgiven you and me, even though we don't, we don't we don't deserve it. just lavish, it's an undeserved place, and we just gotta get to the place where we just actually accept that. <laughs> this is undeserved, and, and therefore I can't try to earn it, I can't try to explain, it. I can't try to work for it. I'm just the only thing I do is just rest in it. And that's what he's just asking us to do. Is just learn to rest in this reality, in the freedom and love and the goodness of God. And then verse 11, he says. We can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because, get this, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Just think about that. Think about your buddies that you hang out with and your friends. You can, I mean, you're not afraid to go hang out with your friends and laugh and tell stupid jokes and you know, tell them you know, some of the screw-ups of the week. You're not afraid because they're your friend, and yet it says you are friends with the God of this universe. See, it's not this distant relationship, you know, kind of like Old Covenant style where you have to have priests in the middle or you've got to confess a bunch of sin or worship for 20 minutes to get into the presence of God. It's like, no, you are a friend of God, and this is why I says you can actually boldly and confidently go into His throne room because God's like, hey, it's my friend. But you're more than a friend. You're a son and a daughter, and He's lavishing you with love and His goodness. We have been made friends with God, and this is a wonderful relationship. And then He goes on, and He says, "As people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant." I mean, you can never out-sin God's grace. I mean, sometimes people think they can, and I've had people say, "You know, I I, I can't really come to church because you know I just live this horrible life, and you know God's going to make the building collapse or something." So somehow that you can out-sin God's grace. Or that somehow you can sin so much that God's going to say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You know, that's just too much, and my grace sure can't cover that. I mean, you could, like, a lot of people believe they can outsin God's grace. They can outsin God's, where fi- God finally gives up on you and says, well, I'm not going to you know, pursue you anymore because, you know, it's just too much. Paul says, no, you can never outsin his grace. The, the more you sin, God's grace is still bigger. It doesn't matter what you've been through, what you've done, or how much mess you've created. God's grace is bigger, and the more you, you know, just hopefully not purposely, the more we screw up, I mean, God's grace is just always bigger, and it always can cover, and and, and if you're in Jesus, you're always forgiven. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, again, we want to tame that down, and we want to teach that, no, no, actually, you can now sin God's grace, and God's going to give up on you. It's like, no, as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them death, now God's wonderful grace rules Instead, you know, sometimes we still want to pretend like sin rules and, and we want to get very sin focused, but, but God's like, no, grace is ruling now. Grace is ruling, and we're living in the age of grace and the forgiveness and love of God. It's not that sin rules, it's grace rules. Uh, so, God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he goes through this whole thing. And then the very next verse he says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? I mean, if we can just keep on sinning and God's forgiveness and grace is just higher and higher, and like, why not just go crazy? Why not become super selfish? Why not go steal a bike and then say, you know, God, forgive me because now we have a bike. I mean, that's basically what he's asking. And, uh, and no doubt, Paul would have been saturated in this in this objection because i mean they have just come out of the old testament kind of living like the religion of the land was the religion of the pharisees it was all about rules and obedience and adhering to this law and all of a sudden paul and jesus come in and they start saying you're forgiven and god's really happy with you even if you don't get all the rules right and and god's laughing he's actually he's your friend because they were used to like they can't even go into the temples. Only the high priest could go into the temple once a year. And he was freaked out. I mean, now all of a sudden you said you can go in there like a friend. And no doubt Paul got a lot of flack about that's just, that's just crazy stuff. I mean, that, you're just, people are just going to go sin like crazy if you start teaching that stuff. And, and look how he answers this question. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And then he says, of course not. Since we have died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? In other words, man, when God moves in, when you realize his love, you are transformed and, and you're just not the same anymore. And then he spends the whole of Romans chapter 6, and you can read this on your own time, but basically saying that this is, chapter 5 is all about this wonderful grace, chapter 6 is like, this has changed you, so this question is it just a license of sin is, is is like a foolish kind of question. He says... We know that our old selves, self was crucified with him. Uh, we have died with Christ. You used to be slaves of sin. You have been set free from sin. And that is not you anymore. And so thinking that because of all this grace that you're just going to become super selfish is like, is like trying to tell this stand, that, this music stand, that it's a tree. You know, I say like, you're a tree. And the stand's like, no, I'm a music stand. I mean, to say, oh, you're just going to become super selfish and you're going to have a license of sin because it's like, nope, that's not who I am anymore. You're changed. Because when you experience His love and His grace, and you kind of move out of following religious rules and just allow yourself to be saturated in God's love, something really does change. You, you feel free, but you're not free to become more selfish. You feel so free to actually just, you can love people deeply and, and, and meet with people who are totally different than you and, and connect with them and listen to them. Something changes in you because you died of sin. And there's this mysterious thing that happens that we can't fully explain that, that when you open your heart to Jesus, that there's a part of you, not the good part, but the broken part of you that is connected with Christ's death on the cross. And there's part of you that just kind of dies. This part of selfishness and, and trying to hoard love for yourself and trying to think that you're better than everybody else, that, that part just begins to die in you enough that Paul says, you are now dead to sin. And it's not a license to sin because it's like, it's just not who I am anymore. And of course, sometimes we read these things and go like, Man, my old self was crucified with him. You know, I, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I've been set free from sin, but, but I still sin. Does so that mean there's something wrong with me? No, uh, there's nothing wrong with you at all. But it's just not who you are anymore. And the, the best way I, I can explain this, and sorry if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, not, nothing against those things, but it's just, it has to do with a chicken, so a dead chicken. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, uh, we raise meat birds, and, you know, our friends back there help us with our meat bird this year, but, uh, but when you take a meat bird and you gotta process it, we use our own meat birds because we like to know where our meat comes from, um, but when you uh, get rid of that chicken's head, I mean that chicken is, is dead, I mean it, there's no head on the chicken and it's dead, but you know the thing's still flopping around and moving, and, and this is what happens is when we invite Jesus into our life, we have died to sin but you know sometimes it's still flopping around and moving in us, you know? Yeah, our nerve, like our little sin nerve, twitches. But, but I mean, I don't look at that chicken and say, "The chicken's still alive." It's like that chicken is dead, but still twitching. And same with us. We're dead to sin. That's not who we are anymore. That's not—it's not our nature anymore. But sometimes it still twitches. Sometimes we have such a habit of living selfishly in the past that sometimes that that sin habit props up again. But but the Bible says, "Look, that is not you anymore." And so. Diving more into God's grace and more into his love and more into forgiveness. I mean, it's not a license to sin because that's not who you are anymore, Paul would say. That, that, is, that is a foolish question, like looking at a banana and saying it's an apple. It, it doesn't make any sense. Now, some other people sometimes bring up this verse in Jeremiah 17. You can't teach too much in God's love or His forgiveness or this amazing grace because, you know, our hearts are super wicked and our hearts are going to twist that and we're going to become more selfish and make the world a worse place. Jeremiah 17, 9 does say the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. And so you can't trust your heart and uh, this kind of heart, you're, you're, you're going to abuse the grace of God. And you're going to do all kinds of nasty things. And you can never trust yourself and, uh, because your heart is deeply wicked. I still hear Christians sometimes quoting this verse. And every time I'm just like, this is completely old covenant. And has nothing to do with the new covenant. It has nothing to do with our relationship with Jesus. In fact, over and over and over in the Bible, talks about us. With a, we actually have a new heart. Uh, that's not who we are anymore. Our heart is no longer wicked or deceitful. It's actually, we have a good heart, a beautiful heart. It's just like we have the mind of Christ, Paul said, and in a sense, we have the heart of Jesus in us. I mean, the whole idea of the new covenant is that we have a good heart. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart. In for place of what? This deceitful, wicked heart. <laughs> so you don't have that heart anymore. You have a new heart. And he says, I will put a new spirit in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. That's the deceitful heart. And give you a tender, responsive heart. Our heart is good. And... As Philippians 2 says, that God has put his desires in us so that we actually want to do the things of God. We actually want to love people because he's given us this new heart. And so this idea of us becoming more and more selfish is like that doesn't even line up with this new heart and this new way of living, this transformation that Jesus has given us. So again, this idea that well, it's a license to license the sin is really a kind of a, a foolish question. And in the end, love is the most powerful means of change. I mean, there are people who are like, no, you've got to get serious on sin and you've got to confront everybody when they mess up and, because that's how you change people. Well, actually, love is what changes people. I mean, sure, you can change people through fear. I mean, fear is great at creating control. And there are churches that operate that or governments that operate that in this world where it's all about fear because if you can get people afraid then you can get them to do what you want to do but that doesn't actually mean your heart is transformed. Our hearts only transform when they feel safe. Our hearts are transformed when they feel love. And this is why God pursues us with love, because it helps our our hearts feel safe, as it says we can trust in His love, and we are transformed. In fact, Romans 2.4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? I mean, this is, this is new covenant reality that it's his love and his forgiveness, his kindness that is, that is moving us towards a more loving position. Uh, others are like, no, nope. you know, God's just serious in sin and it's his anger that's going to try to turn you from your sin. No, it's, it's his kindness that moves us forward. I love the way the Passion Translation puts this verse. Do the riches of his extraordinary kindness make you take him for granted and despise him? Haven't you experienced how kind and understanding he has been to you? Don't mistake his tolerance for acceptance. Do you realize that all the wealth of his extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you into repentance? In other words, it is the love of God that transforms us. It's the love of God that moves us forward. And if we want to better our lives and our relationships, it's like we dive more into God's love and grace. It's, and we saturate ourselves more in his forgiveness. In fact, Ephesians 3 really says experiencing God's love is, is the recipe for transformation. It is the recipe for transformation. Ephesians 3. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Like, you can never fully understand His love, so we can never teach on it enough. You can't teach on God's forgiveness and grace and love enough because Paul is saying, like, this is my prayer that that all Christians would hopefully understand it, but we can never understand it because it's just so crazy good. When you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I mean, I don't know who, uh, all of us, I mean, want to be made more complete. I mean, all all of us want to do better in our relationships and in at work and at school and and right here is the recipe for transformation how are we made complete well it says may you experience the love of christ then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of everything we ever want i mean we got to keep diving into god's love and diving into this idea of forgiveness and diving into this idea of his grace because the more we saturate ourselves in the more it leads to transformation I mean because love is the most powerful thing to change and again this idea is somehow that if we dive more into love or you know sometimes I, even I've got the criticism you teach too much on love all the time it's like but but that's the secret of transformation <laughs> that's our change and the more we teach on it I mean it doesn't give us a, a license to, to become more selfish to the very opposite I mean we can use an illustration like this in In uh, in 1988, there was the the huge Armenian earthquake, which was one of the biggest in in a long, long time. I mean, tens of thousands were killed. I think there was over 100,000 injured. But there's a true story of a father uh, who always told his son every day, no matter what, I'm going to be there for you. It was his line to his son. You know, just like some dads, you know, I love you. His line was, no matter what, I will always be there for you. Well, this day, in December, when this, this earthquake hit, his son was in a school, and, uh, and when, after the earthquake, and buildings just everywhere were, were, were down, he runs to the school, hoping that the school is still standing, but he gets there and it's completely collapsed. And he, and he knew his son was in there. And, and he begins to, to dig with his, with his bare hands, and, and there are other people arrive, and, and they were just saying, It's hopeless. Uh, just, just don't even try. But he, he went at it alone. Nobody would help him because everybody thought that all the kids were dead. And he digs for hour after hour removing this rubble. And eight hours he dug and 12 hours he dug and 16 hours and 24 hours he dug. He dug for 38 hours by himself because of his promise. You know, no matter what, I'm going to be there for you. And as as the 30th hour hit, he pulled out this huge piece of rubble and he heard the voices of children. And it just so happened when the school collapsed, these two big pieces kind of fell like an A-frame and his son, along with 13 other kids, we're still alive and he pulls out his son and, and he pulls out these other 13 kids and, and he says to his son, I told you, no matter what, I'm going to be there for you. Now, do you think that son in that moment would have like spit in his father's face? Do you think that father's like, well, no, I'm just going to do everything against you and I'm just going to become super selfish and I'm going to punch you and steal all your money and all your food and just going to do whatever. No, I mean, that son is going to be like, he owes his life to his dad. I mean, his dad has become his biggest hero. I and mean, this is with us and our Father. I mean, the more you realize how much he has rescued us and how much he loves us and his forgiveness and how he's forgiven and forgotten our sin, the more we dive into this grace where there is no condemnation and, and, and no shame, I mean, that's what transforms us. I mean, we can never teach too much on his grace and love and forgiveness because that is the very recipe for transformation. And these folks who say, well, you're just giving people a license for, to sin, and it's religious folks who are very centered around a bunch of religious rules and rule following, sometimes they want to say, well, you need to ask yourself that same question. Because you look at the Pharisees, they were the ones who were focused on religious rules, and who were the, the nastiest people in Scripture? It was the Pharisees. I mean, who were the ones that Jesus said and says, you're following your father, and, and the, the father is the devil. They were following Satan. I mean. I mean, often it's those people who get so rule-focused who actually end up the most in sin, if you will, because they become nasty and they become judgmental and they they want to take God's love and they want to kind of not talk about it much and talk about following rules instead. And that will always lead to judgmentalism and judging others and thinking you're superior and it doesn't fall in line with the grace that God wants to see. I mean, the power of God's love is greater and the power of religious rule following and self-discipline. And and we see that in, like, the story of, in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is hanging out with the Pharisees, having dinner at the Pharisee's house, these guys who are all steeped in religious rules. And in comes this, this, it was called a sinful woman, we don't know why, but perhaps she was a prostitute or something. And she she pours oil on Jesus' feet, and with her tears begins to, to, to wipe Uh, Jesus' feet and she has her hair down which was a no-no in that culture because it was very sensuous what she was doing and and the Pharisee thinks man if Jesus knew how sinful that woman is then Jesus would never let that woman touch you know him if he was actually a prophet and then Jesus looks at the Pharisee and you remember what he said he says her sins have been forgiven see it doesn't matter how much you sin God's grace is always more he looks at this woman who was called in that community a sinful woman. There was no other woman who was more sinful. And and Jesus just says, her sins have been forgiven as their great love has shown me. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. You see, the more you get focused on religious rule following, the more you try to limit God's love, you just tend to become more of an unloving person. Because the more you realize how much you've been forgiven and the more you realize the grace of God as Jesus is, the more you tend to love and and the more you tend to do the very thing that Jesus wants you to do, which is to love as he has loved us. The very one rule that sums up the entire scripture is to love. As Romans 13 says, it's love that fulfills the requirements of God's law. Or Galatians 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And the only way that happens with us is, we, is when we encounter the incredible richness of God's forgiveness that is so beautiful and so deep that He actually forgets our sins. And the only way this really happens is when we realize that we are so forgiven and God has so removed judgment from me, and how in the world can I stand there and condemn my brother or sister, as it says in Romans 14? I mean, when we saturate ourselves in God's love, it transforms. So don't ever stop pursuing his love. Don't ever stop mining the riches of his grace. Don't ever stop trying to understand the depths of his forgiveness because you can keep digging and digging and digging. As Paul said, it's too deep for us to ever understand. But the deeper you go, the more transformation you'll see. So, Father, we thank you for your deep love. And, God, we just want to surrender more and more into it. Because we know it's your love that sets us free. God, we know it's your love that transforms our hearts. And, God, we want to just be able to trust in you. God, so I just pray you continue to remove any negative fear we have of you. God, that you remove any negative fear condemnation or shame that we have, uh, if we sense that from you, because we, God, we know that you have perfectly forgiven us, that we have perfect peace with you, and God, that you are a friend. And so we stand in this place of undeserved privilege, and we just say, thank you, in you Jesus' name.